Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, we're going to be talking with an old friend of the podcast. This is probably the third time he's been on. Uh, my friend, the movie critic, Matthew Hayes. Welcome, Matthew. Hi. Hi. So I wanted to get you on here because uh, there's a, a classic movie that I know uh, you cover in a lot of your classes and you've, you've written on it. You've mentioned it in your reviews of, of other movies, Dirty Harry with Clint Eastwood, which now... Uh, given what's happening in the United States and with the Black Lives Matter movement, it just seems uh, very, very topical and very, like it could have been made yesterday. Uh, and so I went back and you know, watched the movie um, a couple of times and I watched Magnum Force and a bunch of other those things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, why do you think this movie seems so relevant and people are talking about it on they're mentioning it in uh, on the news they're mentioning it in articles they're why do you think it seems so relevant again well the, the film was is first of all it's a it's an incredibly entertaining film it's great fun to watch i mean i remember w- watching it with my father as a kid right and and i remember my father talking about it and saying well this is clearly just a western that they've made in contemporary times, which he was absolutely right about, which, which is one of the things that's really interesting about it to teach. I've taught it in a genres class, a film genres class that works perfectly talking about it as an updated Western, but it's, you know, it's, uh, I've taught it in a crime genres class too. It's, it's a really fascinating film and it's, it's really one of the great American films to come out of the seventies. It's politics are, are creepy. Obviously it's a, it's a, I think Pauline Kael was correct. The New Yorker film critic, when she said, this is a fascist film. That's one of the reasons why it's really interesting to look at. Um, The film was born out of um, obviously an extremely divided time in America. Um, uh, The country was divided by race, um, but also by age in particular, the so-called generation gap. And notably, the role of Dirty Harry, Don Siegel, the director, originally foresaw um, John Wayne taking the role. Um, and that would have made the, the, the uh, generation gap uh, more clear because, of course, he's a, he was an older actor at that time. And John Wayne apparently read the script and said, well, why the hell don't you just make a Western? I mean, this is ridiculous. Why is it set in contemporary San Francisco? He didn't understand and he never stopped regretting that he turned it down because, of course, the film became a sensation when it was offered, when it was given to Clint Eastwood. Um, the other funny story about casting is that Paul Newman was offered the role. Well, of course, he went, took one look at the script and said, well, this isn't for me. I'm kind of a left-wing guy. He famously was on Nixon's, made Nixon's enemies list and said, there's been no greater honor I've ever received than being on made, making Nixon's list of enemies. And he said, this is uh, more for a right-wing actor. You should, you should give this to Clint. He was friends with Clint Eastwood. And so then that, that's why they approached Clint Eastwood, who, of course, relished the role. And now you can't imagine anyone else being Dirty Harry but Clint Eastwood. But, you know, the film actually came about 
um, in part due to the screenwriters were inspired by the Miranda decision um, in 1966, the Supreme Court decision, um, which was based around the case of Ernesto Miranda um, in, in March of 63. He was arrested by Phoenix police for the kidnapping and rape of an 18 year old woman. And after two years, two hours rather of interrogation, Miranda actually signed a full confession. Um, but his lawyer argued that he had not been, he wasn't a very educated person. Um, he didn't even really have a high school diploma and that uh, the police by interrogating him without giving him uh, telling him that he had a right to a lawyer, that they had, they had actually, um, uh, they, they had failed him. Uh, they had, his, his, his constitutional rights had been violated. He had the right to an attorney and he hadn't been told that. And that was the Miranda decision in 1966 that said, you must, uh, read, uh, you must read these Miranda rights to someone who's been arrested. You must let them know that they have right to legal counsel and that they, they, they can't just be interrogated without a lawyer present. So that was really interesting. And, um, then Chief Justice Earl Warren, himself a former prosecutor, said Miranda's constitutional rights had been violated. And in his decision, he wrote, quote, the person in custody must, prior to interrogation, be clearly informed that he has the right to remain silent and that anything he says will be used against him in court. He must be clearly informed that he has the right to consult with a lawyer and to have the lawyer with him during interrogation and that if he is indigent, a lawyer will be appointed to represent him. So, that's really fascinating. But what's interesting about the Supreme Court decision, and of course, now there's a lot of talk about the Supreme Court and the balance of the Supreme Court, because of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had just, just, just died yesterday. Um, this was not a unanimous decision. It was hugely contentious. It passed five to four. So it was a very razor thin majority that passed the Miranda decision. And two of the justices, not just one, but two justices wrote dissenting opinions for the record in which they warned that this would create an epic problem for police who would be hampered by their ability to interrogate suspects. So Dirty Harry grew really out of a, was a deeply political film. It, it, it grew directly out of anger that people on the right had about decisions like this, what they called an activist court. They said, the court is now hampering police ability to the police, uh, you know, officers ability to um, go, go hard on criminals, which they should, they should be, they shouldn't be allowed to get away with um, anything. And further, we have to keep in mind the context as I, as I teach this film, that is in 1971, um, of course, there'd been a lot of political violence in the United States, people being assassinated, everyone from Medgar Evers uh, to jo President John F. Kennedy to um, Malcolm X to Martin Luther King Jr. to <laughs> um, RFK, Robert F. Kennedy, who was almost certainly going to be the Democratic nominee and almost certainly going to be the next president of the United States. He was hugely charismatic. So there'd been a whole, and George Wallace also at this point, I believe by 71, was he shot in 71 or 72? I can't remember. Anyway. I can't remember, yeah. There's a whole load of people getting killed. Most of them, I must, must be noted, Democrats or left-wing people, progressive people getting killed. So conspiracy theories were rife at the time and mainly the domain of the left, which is interesting now because the right really owns conspiracy theories now. They're the ones who are most invested them around Donald Trump. But there were huge crime waves in cities like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles. Uh, there were neighborhoods you, you were warned if you were tourist, don't go to that neighborhood. Invariably, it was the black or, or brown neighborhood. There were certain places you didn't go. And uh, there was, uh, you know, there was, if you were in New York and you took a ride in the subway, you had a pretty good chance of being mugged. I and mean, I got mugged in New York in 1988. I mean, it was, it was, the crime was rife uh, in, in this time. And there was debate about how you should deal with crime. A lot of people said, we have to look at the root causes of crime. Um, it reminds me of your, uh, of your uh, site committing sociology. Um, you, you know, there were sociological uh, ideas around it. We have to improve the education system. We have to give people jobs. We have to look at what's happening in inner city neighborhoods that, that, that are giving birth to uh, communities that are, that are just, the crime rates are through the roof. Um, New York was sort of almost uninhabitable for a while. In fact, some, uh, this is true, some 
tourism, when you used to go, you used to have to, before the internet, you used to have to go to a, 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 an actual uh, travel agent and book your book your flights and your hotels and all the rest of it. I remember travel agents and uh, there used to be a thing. You used to go to a travel agency and they would do all the bookings for you. They'd find you the cheapest flight. They'd book you a hotel, they'd, you know, all the rest of it. A lot of uh, travel agents were warning people away from going to New York City. It's hard to believe uh, last because the last 20 years, it's been a, a real tourist trap. But it used to be, and the crime rate in New York, I mean, pandemic has changed things, but the crime rate in New York has actually been it's one of the one of the safest cities in in America um, for the last twenty years. It's been remarkably safe. That wasn't like that in 1971. It was uh, San Francisco, New York. These these cities had quite severe crime rates, uh, muggings, murders, rapes. So, a film like Dirty Harry comes along and answers and answers all of the questions very simply. It, it argues that um, criminals have too many rights, and if somebody like Clint Eastwood came along with a big gun they could uh, put an end to all these crimes. Hmm. I, I don't know. I, I was watching it and I found it, I think I probably, I, I probably, before I even saw the movie, I think I had heard from my mom or, or some, you know, I was raised in a very sort of hippie uh, left-wing milieu. And, and I think I had heard, like Dirty Harry was, was a, a bad word or a bad phrase. It was like a, so I, it was notorious long before I actually saw it. I can't remember when I actually did see it for the first time, but I think I, I had it in my head that it was this like fascist movie. Yeah, and so I think I think I, I probably watched it and uh, and enjoyed it, but sort of thought, you know, this is this is like bad, you know, <laughs> Triumph of the Will or something. This is this is you know bad movie, uh, and morally speaking, but. I, when I was watching it again this time, I I found uh, a number of things about the movie that that sort of complicated that narrative for me. Uh, one of them is that um, obviously you know idea words like fascist or socialist or you know whatever uh, the freedom <laughs> they get freighted with all sorts of different things over time, and I I understand that that's the case. But it seems to me that even if we wanted to go with the most loose uh, and kind of open generate uh, kind of way of thinking about fascism, like definition of fascism. It seems to me that fascism is almost by definition um, where you have like it's, it's force authoritarian force that is wielded by um, the state. Right. So by like, uh, and that's, you know, and that it seems to me like that's sort of a very basic, definition of fascism i mean maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong about that uh, but and what i saw in dirty harry is actually um something that's it's not like that it's actually the it's not the state uh, the state is not the one wielding the power um it is um it's just sort of this one individual pop who's doing this stuff right so he's he's almost like a you know, you might say sort of a vigilante with a badge, you know, he's like, he's going to try and get justice, but he, the state is not on his side. No, like, right. It's like the classic Western hero. He has his own more code of morals and ethics. And he is, he is at odds um, with not only with the criminal, but he's at odds with the figures of authority. But the, but the film is, I still think quite fascist in that it's making the argument that all of these liberal justices and uh, and and liberal do-gooders are getting in the way of Dirty Harry, who really should be given absolute power with his gun. He should be able to do whatever he wants. That's the argument that the film is making. So it's actually saying, well, the police shouldn't be hampered by the Constitution or rules. Or they even have at one point. I don't know if you remember. He's in the meeting with the police chief, and uh, after he's he's arrested the guy. Uh, arrested the, the the creepy killer, the crazed psychotic killer. <clears throat> He's uh, and the 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 police chief has brought in an actual academic, who then cites various <laughs> a sociologist, yeah, a, a sociologist, a professor, I believe, of law, who cites the Constitution, and says you've you've uh, violated all of these rights that he has, and. Uh, the, the the evidence that you have have gathered, you have done so while breaching 
his constitutional rights. Therefore, we can't admit, admit it in court. And Dirty Harry's, Harry Callahan is furious by this. He said, well, what good is the constitution if it's getting in the way of justice? So it's this very strange thing because people on the right are so often, uh, Trump and others are so often talking about constitutional rights. What about the second amendment? What about this? What about the constitution? And as some people have pointed out, uh, critics of, of, of those people have said, well, you, you, you defend the constitution, yet you don't seem to have actually read it. Um, you don't seem to understand <laughs> what the constitution is. Um, constitutional rights mean that people are protected from police uh, overaction. And of course, uh, we don't live in a police state. At least I hope we don't. The police aren't supposed to have absolute power. Yes, they have certain powers, but they're not supposed to abuse them. Um, Dirty Harry is like an essay film. It makes the argument. It sets up this argument that really is unassailable. I mean, like the guy, the killer, right? He's um, played by Andrew Robinson, who didn't, didn't really go on to much else, which is too bad because he's a great actor in it. I mean, it's actually one of the great performances, I think, of, a, of an evil character. Yeah, but- he's a, a, good, a very good friend of mine who's a, a massive, massive movie buff, uh, Aaron Haspel. He has told me uh, on numerous occasions that he thinks that uh, that guy, you know, that, that bad guy in Dirty Harry hit his, is the creepiest villain in any movie he's ever seen in his life. Yeah. And he's, he's completely, of course, completely irredeemable. I mean, he not only um, rapes a young girl and murders her, but uh, you know, spoiler alert, obviously for anyone who hasn't seen the film, you should see the film first before hearing uh, this podcast, but you know, murders this woman, a young woman uh, takes her teeth out, rips her teeth out to send as evidence that he has her to, to the police. Uh, You know, hijacks a bus full of children and actually hits one of the children. So of course there's absolutely no way that anyone could say, well, this, this poor guy needs a lawyer. I mean, the whole point, (laughs) the film film sets you up emotionally is to go, well, just the only solution is just to blow this guy's head off. I mean, that's really all he needs is a bullet to the head. So it's, this is sort of this, it sets up this very, very, very conservative argument for justice and, um, he's also uh, has a lot of the sort of paraphernalia of hippie. He, he wears long hair, his belt buckle he, is a peace symbol at one point. Um, and he talks about a victim's tits, but he also seems to be coded as queer, if not, if not gay, then bisexual at very least. Um, in particular, uh, one point, um, Clint Eastwood pulls out his gun and, uh, the killer says, well, that's a big one talking about his gun. Obviously, <laughs> obviously reference. Yeah. And also he hires a, a black guy to kick, the, to beat, beat him up. Um, so that yes. he can claim that Clint Eastwood, well, he actually seems to be really getting off on the black guy beating him up. Like he's, he's yeah. some sort of SM thing going on. So there's, he's really coded as this sort of hippie, this psychotic hippie um, almost uh, like could be a a member of the Manson family, you know, just a few years earlier had committed these horrific crimes um, in Los Angeles. So he's, he's really coded as just this sort of horrible, evil hippie who needs to be blown away by, by this great cop who is just being hampered by the constitution is just getting in his way, dirty Harry's way. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, uh, so if I understand you you correctly, you're not saying that it's, it's fascist in the in the most obvious sense of advocating uh, a it's sort of showing a, f- a fascist government working really well or something like that. Like I, I, you know, some people say like RoboCop would be more like that, or some of those movies where they're it's it in a much more straightforward way. It's a it's a fascist argument saying that you know we need because you're saying that this sort of leads you to a conclusion that we need some, that we don't have a fascist government, but we need one or. Well, yeah. Said, yeah. I, I think the film is, is clearly, it's clearly it. The thing is, is that um, uh, Matt uh, Wanat, who is a, um, uh, an uh, English professor at a high university in the United States, he's written uh, quite extensively about, Clint Eastwood and his essay on Dirty Harry is really interesting to read. And I mean, he clearly agrees with 
with Pauline Kael, um, that it's a fascist film. But he argues, I think it's a really interesting argument. He, he argues that the film is so obvious in its politics that it's um, less harmful than a lot of films that don't wear their politics so clearly and are, are a lot more stealth about the things that they advocate. I mean, this film is it's so obvious. It's, it's almost really, uh, one of the reasons why I enjoy watching it is because even as a kid, I thought some of it was pretty funny. I mean, it's got a sense of humor about itself. It's almost like a parody of a fascist film. It's, like, it's so over the top. I mean, the killer's over the top, the, the, everything about it. And, and what, what I find interesting about it is that it's so effective as propaganda. It has had a huge legacy. Um, people still think of this film when they talk about crime and punishment in America. People still refer to it. And, and uh, you know, a couple of times I've shown it. And when I've talked about it and kind of de- deconstructed the film and talked about all of the things going on in it, some of the students are actually really quite offended. And they, they sort of defend it as if they've just watched a documentary. I mean, they really feel <laughs> this is like, uh, well, yeah. you know, doesn't this guy really deserve to be killed? And I'm like, well, he's, you realize this isn't a documentary. It's a fictional film. And this car- this film has been written with clear intents and purposes to make us hate the killer, see that there's nothing redeemable about him. And that the only thing that's going to stop him isn't some awful liberal Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the court telling him that he had to have his rights read to him. He needs to be killed. Um, and one of the sequences too, that really is interesting is in the football arena, when he, when he finally shoots um, the, the killer in the leg, and then proceeds to, to torture him so that he can find out where the girl is who's been kidnapped. Where is the, 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 the woman who he's tortured and where is she? Um, the, the scene is a clear justification of torture. It's saying in this case, he had to do this because he had to get the information to find out where this woman is so he can save her. As it turns out, she's already dead. But then Which the next- he knew. He said that like early on, he said, you know, she's already dead, right? He thinks she probably is. But at that point, he's not a hundred percent sure. So we're again led to believe that it, we're just, it's justified in, in, in showing in, 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 in that Dirty Harry is completely justified in this. And I want, I want, if I could, just to read briefly, uh, Matt, one of the, the academic I mentioned earlier, the author I mentioned earlier, just briefly his description of the scene um, yeah, go for it. Uh, in the stadium, because I think it's really interesting. And of course, the, the, the football stadium itself is, lo- is a loaded place in which to have this scene, because um, what we do know about uh, football is that it, it's a game that is very tied up with um, notions of military. Um, uh, it's also very tied up with patriotism. That's why, you know, um, Athletes taking a knee has been has been very controversial during the national anthem that uh, Trump has said these people are being unpatriotic when they take a knee in peaceful protest against police violence. So I find that recently, of course, some athletes uh, simply linked arms during the anthem and they got booed at the game. So this is a kind of a hallowed ground, the stadium. So the fact that this scene of this really horrific scene of torture happens in the stadium is itself really noteworthy. But Matt Winnett writes here, quote, Harry chases his prey to the stadium, where from the self-reflexive point of view of the spectator seats, he captures the scampering sniper in his sights and fires, spinning Scorpio off his feet like a blasted rabbit. Then in the kinetic theater of the stadium lights, Harry crosses the yard markers and grinds the pleading, begging Scorpio's wounded leg into the grassy field. The camera pulls back to an eerily indifferent distance, as Scorpio screams and Harry continues to torture him into giving him the location of the kidnapped girl. Harry's genuine concern for the girl notwithstanding, the scene plays either as a titillating endorsement for torture or as a disturbing sketch of a visceral brutality. The scene is simultaneously pornographic, aesthetically beautiful, terrifying, and repulsive. I think that's huh. Extremely good description of that scene. And of course, the camera pulls back in a helicopter shot as the torture is happening. It's one of the most beautiful uses of a helicopter shot I have ever seen in a film. It's it's completely haunting that scene because we're watching this torture, which should repulse us, and it does. But we also feel that Harry is completely justified in what he's doing. 
Yeah, well, we have that that view, that sort of godlike view from above, where it's you know everything everything can be uh, everything can look okay from a distance if you get far enough away from it, and you you sort of you don't have to be right there smelling it and have it right up in your face. So you get like the the alternate, um, and that's you know so much of the movie is like that, right? You start off with that scene where he's look, the killer is looking down the woman on swimming in the pool. And then, uh, and then Clint Eastwood's character, Harry is kind of on the same roof, looking down and seeing what the killer saw. Right. And what, so there's a lot of this, this theme of people going kind of up and down stairs and looking from high distances and how that kind of changes your perspective. Right. And of course, like the guy, uh, the Scorpio, lives underground like he's the groundskeeper and he lives underground like Dostoevsky's underground man there's yeah there's a lot of like weird things with like high and low and it's uh yeah that, that's kind of quite interesting but I there's one other thing I wanted to make sure to ask you about it well the first one was uh, what we just talked about was the fascism thing because when I went and watched it again I found uh, you know as I said that the the idea that it's straightforwardly fascist in the way that i don't know starship troopers is or you know there's a lot of movies that are very straightforwardly kind of advocating uh, fascism of one kind or another this one i found a little bit like more you know maybe needed more of an argument it didn't seem as obvious to me but the other thing is uh, malcolm gladwell was on the joe rogan's podcast um, a couple of months ago just talking about his new book and he just like came out with this theory. And I was like, I've got to tell Matt about this. <laughs> Ask him what he thinks about this. He basically categorizes um, sort of thrillers into four different categories. And he says like, there's uh, a Western, an Eastern, a Northern, and a Southern. Right? <laughs> okay, so, and I wanted you sort of, with this typology in mind, I wonder uh, what what we could do with Dirty Harry with this typology. So um, a Western takes place in a world in which there is no law and order and a man shows up and imposes personally law and order on the territory, uh, the community. An Eastern, uh, so I, I guess like the perfect example of that would be maybe High Noon, you know, with, uh, right, that would be with Gary Cooper. Um, so an Eastern is a story where there is law and order. So there are institutions of justice, but they have been subverted by people from within. Uh, then um, uh, in a Northern, law and order exists and law and order is morally righteous. The system works. A uh, prime example of this is, of course, law and order, right, where the system works and it, you know, you you're seeing how well it works from from the initial arrest to the uh, conviction kind of thing, right? Uh, and then a Southern is where the entire apparatus is corrupt and where the reformer is not an insider, but an outsider. So I, it seems to me like, according to that typology, uh, if Gladwell's right, um, then Dirty Harry would be an Eastern, not a Western. It would, because it, it, you have it, you have, I mean, the people in charge are not uh, corrupt. The mayor is not corrupt. The police chief is not corrupt. Uh, the, there are institutions of justice. There is, but um, they have been subverted. Um, you know, they're, they're not working. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just something completely other than, well, first of all, what do you think of that typology? Well, typology is interesting. I would still argue. I would argue this is this is a Western because the the justice system is is clearly failing, right? Like that's what Clint Eastwood's saying is that it's it's um, it, it, it's it's been corrupt. It's been corrupted by liberalism. That's what he's arguing. It's a it's, it's exactly like what Donald Trump says. These phony liberal institutions have made it impossible. Like what he just you know a couple of years ago when. Trump addressed all these police officers and said, "You know, when you're arresting people, don't don't be nice. Don't try slam to- their head up, slam their head on the yeah, roof you're, as you're putting you, them in the car." Yeah, I see you putting your your head your hand on their head so that they don't bump their their head on the door. Why are you doing that? I mean, he was inciting, really, telling police to 
to uh, the police uh, police chiefs uh, of America signed a, a document uh, signed a, an open letter the next day saying uh, we don't really agree with this. This is uh, you're actually asking the police to abuse people who they've arrested. Uh, you have to uh, operate uh, at least on some level uh, on the innocent until proven guilty uh, concept. I mean, you can't just start beating people up. That's what's happening in America and causing a lot of these problems. Um, yeah. But it's interesting because you mentioned High Noon. Uh, of course, the end of Dirty Harry is an homage to High Noon. At the end of High Noon, Gary Cooper throws his badge into the dust. And at the end of Dirty Harry, he, he throws his badge into the pond and skips it across the bond. Of course, that doesn't last for very long because they had to make sequels and Magnum Force, the next sequel, the very next sequel, he's back on the force again. So he didn't, his, his, he got his badge back somehow. Um, I think that uh, you also mentioned Starship Troopers. And I think that's a really interesting example to bring up because in that film, Paul Verhoeven read the source material and said, this is a really fascist, this is a really <laughs> So his Starship Troopers is actually a parody of the work. So he's actually making fun of fascism in that film. And of course, a lot of audience members didn't pick that up. They thought this is, oh, this is great. This is all about going and kicking some alien ass. And that's not what Verhoeven meant. He said, when I interviewed him, he said, well, we basically, uh, we foresaw the, the invasion of Iraq. We, we were actually kind of making fun of this whole militaristic mentality and mindset. And we called it, right? That's what we were, we were trying to do with that film. We, we were mocking it. Um, interestingly, Entertainment Weekly, when they reviewed that film, um, they didn't, the one time in its entire history of the magazine, they didn't give it a letter grade. And that's because the reviewer felt that he couldn't really tell. Uh, he said, some people won't see the parody in this film. It's actually a dangerous film. Some people will actually see it as a straight up advocacy of uh, military intervention of, uh, of uh, the kind of uh, uh, preemptive war, which was what the Iraq invasion. Yeah, that's, that's exactly how I saw it. I didn't, I didn't see it as parody. And I remember people telling me that at the time afterwards, my friend Jack told me that. And like, I, I just thought, okay, this is the, the problem, right? This is always the problem with, with satire is that, you know, the classic example of this is all in the family, right? Yes. You have this like show where it, the writers of the show are like hippie progressives who are trying to make fun of a certain kind of like uh, urban ethnic bigot Archie Bunker, right? And so they, they're trying to like the, kids are supposed to be kind of cool and you're supposed to the, the show is set up for you to be laughing um at at Archie Bunker but what they didn't you know the show became wildly wildly popular and which was surprising to them because it was popular in in the deep south as well as like in the north and on the coasts and everywhere in between and then they realized when they started talking to people that actually half the country thought that the show was making fun of the hippie kids and they thought Archie, they thought Archie was the bunker was the hero of the show and they didn't pick up on the satire at all. They thought, Oh wow. Finally, like somebody is, uh, you know, one of ours shining. Like it, we, they, they thought it was right. And I think that happens so often with, um, with art, you know, that it can be very kind of, different people bring different things to the, to the text, right? And then <laughs> they, oh, uh, no. they sort of see what they want, you know? All in, All in the Family is an extremely good example of that. And Archie Bunker became a hero. Um, and people knew that that show, they knew what the perspective of the show was, but they were identifying with Archie and felt that he was correct most of the time and that he spoke his mind and he was refreshing. Um, he often got great one-liners. They gave him great one-liners. So he was often, people laughed at things. He also said, he said things, said the N-word on the show. You can go back and see it. And the episode, one of the episodes where they dealt with a gay character, um, Archie couldn't believe his friend who was very butch and had been a football player was gay. And this is all revealed to him um, quite shockingly. Um, it's one of the first episodes to, of TV to deal with that, uh, that issue when back when there was no gay characters on television, believe it or not. Um, Richard Nixon on tape, one of the tapes revealed that he said, uh, Poor Archie Bunker, you know, poor guy. They were really mean to him on that episode. He was just, uh, so he had, Archie Bunker had the sympathy of Richard Nixon. And um, in his book, uh, on his first book on the Trump 
presidency, Bob Woodward reveals that when Steve Bannon was first floating the idea of Donald Trump being um, the Republican nominee, um, some people were really warning against this. So don't go near Donald Trump. He's not one of us. In fact, Andrew Breitbart, the founder of the Breitbart site, who's, who's died a few years ago, he actually warned people away from Donald Trump and said, look, this guy is a former Democrat. He was pro-choice. He was for gun control. He's not one of us. Um, the Clintons were at his wedding to Melania. He was just praising Nancy Pelosi six, six or eight months ago. Really, do not make it Donald Trump. And Steve Bannon said, oh, no, 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 no. We've got an Archie Bunker on our hands here. So I think that's really interesting, too. But I mean... Oh, that's amazing. But Dirty, Dirty Harry, of course, uh, went on to make... There were all these sequels. And one of the sequels, um, Dirty Harry says... Uh, to to a criminal who is going to reach for his gun in the middle of a robbery and dirty harry's got his gun aimed at him and says make my day and that became a very famous catchphrase right make my day and ronald reagan in 1985 um, was actually asked about a political standoff over taxes and when asked about tax increases he said he was ready to use his veto power and he said well how far would you go like what would you do and and Ronald Reagan said, make my day. So he was actually quoting Dirty Harry and everyone loved him for this. So um, there, there was this incredible interplay between politics and, and the character of Dirty Harry and the films that I find really, really interesting. Of course, at the 2012 Republican convention, um, Clint Eastwood completely upstaged Mitt Romney by showing up and giving a speech at the convention in which he pretended to be talking to Obama, which was just an empty, an empty stool. And it was a very, very weird, it was a very weird moment where he was kind of did this existential monologue where he was just talking to this person who didn't exist, but he was kind of trying to make fun of Obama. It was a very strange moment. Um, people likened it to Grandpa Simpson at that point. But uh, I thought that was really interesting, but the crowd insisted that he say make my day so that they could all cheer say it along with him and cheer so that phrase became has become part of the sort of lexicon of the right yeah one of the weirdest references that i've heard in the last couple years dirty harry is uh, just when the the me too movement uh, was kind of taking off there were some people on i remember one on the jezebel site who said you know maybe we need to go and and Relook at Dirty Harry as a feminist movie <laughs> because it was because Dirty Harry was one of the first movies that um, that demonstrated uh, like a deep flaw in liberalism with its excessive focus on individual rights and 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 procedure and things like that and that it shows how you know this rapist this like, you know, killer, this person who's like a misogynist who, you know, from the first scene is shooting an innocent woman in a pool and is like, you know, abducting and raping, that that it shows how this way of doing things um, is, doesn't take into account the rights of victims and doesn't take into account and that it doesn't serve. And that, you know, the only way that this killer of women is caught is by somebody not playing by the liberal rules. And I mean, classically liberal focus on, on rights and procedure and rule of law and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, that, yeah, that, that feminist film has already been made and that's Thelma and Louise, obviously. <laughs> that's, that's the film where vigilante justice means that, uh, you know, a man is about to rape, Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon shoots, and then they go on the lam and they're trying to evade police. But everyone, of course, had said women's screenwriter. Everyone has sympathy for, for Thelma and Louise in the film. Right. So that's kind of the, the other one, the other film I would point to, you know, there have been ma- ma- various vigilante movies over the years and death wish is another good example, which obviously was inspired in part by dirty Harry. But in that film, Charles Bronson, his wife and daughter are brutally attacked. The, the mother doesn't survive. She dies. The daughter is basically catatonic because she's so traumatized and brain damaged by what's happened to her because she's been brutally raped and attacked at, by a gang of thugs who, um, pretend they're delivering groceries, but barge into the house. One of them being Jeff Goldblum, a young Jeff Goldblum. Um, And, uh, and Charles Bronson um, 
is uh, is coaxed out of his liberal ways by somebody who gives him a gun when he's traveling down south, and basically tells him, you know, you're you're a crazy liberal. What what these criminals? The only thing they'll really understand is a bullet, you know. And uh, it's a it's a really fun right wing fan. Again, it's a very entertaining film because Charles Bronson um, does does this. He goes out with a gun and shoots criminals who try to mug him and saves one woman who's being attacked and shoots them. And then he, the vigilante, just the vigilante who nobody can identify is ends up on the cover of Newsweek and time. And suddenly um, the crime rate in New York plummets because people are worried about the criminals are suddenly worried that this guy is going to kill them. So this becomes this right wing fantasies. What we really just need to do is arm people. And there's a, Going back to Archie Bunker, there's a famous episode of All in the Family where Archie calls up a TV station and says, "I can't believe you're, you know, you're, uh, you're, you're all this phony baloney about liberal gun control," and and he said, "Why don't you give me a segment to talk about what I think?" And so they give him a segment on on the news where he says, uh, "the the answer to a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun." That's what the answer gun control is. You have another person with a gun and he'll shoot to, so it's just like a Western. And of course um, that episode became um, that clip of Archie Bunker went viral because uh, that's exactly what Donald Trump said about gun, about gun violence. He said, well, we just need a good guy with a gun and that'll stop the bad guy with a gun. And so he quoted, basically was quoting almost verbatim Archie Bunker. So we go back to these arguments again. Yeah, I, I guess the, the difference for me, a really crucial difference between like something like Death Wish and Dirty Harry is that um, we, you know, at least in any society that has the rule of law, we give the state has uh, the monopoly on the use of force, right? So we have that like that as a cardinal kind of bedrock value. And so um, Harry Callahan is a, is a police officer. So, I mean, he's, he's a representative of the state. So him using force uh, is, you know, definitely some of the stuff he does is really, really uh, illegal and um, unethical and is is crossing all sorts of lines, but it's a, it's at least he's actually, uh, he's a, he's a police officer. So it's somehow, you know, can be held to account and, you, know, you can sue the the city and you can sue the police force and things like that um, and do something. But, you know, in Death Wish, he's just, Charles Bronson is just a straight, I mean, that, that movie almost feels like a, like a snuff film to me. It's, um, it is. It's, it's a really, it's just a straight up vigilante movie. It's, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's much more, uh, I, I, I never really liked it very much. It's uh, it gives me the creeps, <laughs> but um, well, but it's yeah, it's not as beautiful to watch or as interesting as Dirty Harry at all. No, it's it's a, it's a kind of a snuff movie. They remade it recently with Bruce Willis. It wasn't a very good remake, but I actually I, I enjoyed Death Wish too. It's entertaining, but it's obviously ludicrous, and its its ideas are are ludicrous. There's also a, a vigilante movie from the early seventies called Joe, which also features Susan Sarandon in, in her, one of her first roles and in a supporting role in the film. She's really great in it. Um, but it also uh, basically is a vigilante movie that kind of deconstructs the vigilante movie as it goes along. It shows what the ultimate, um, what the ultimate fallout can be from, from, you know, what the ultimate ramifications can be if everyone just picks up a gun. Now, one of the things that's really interesting, one of the things that's not really ever noted when people talk about Dirty Harry is that, that of course, there were in, invariably, inevitably sequels. And the first sequel called Magnum Force is really fascinating because in that film, um, the screenplay is basically, uh, it, it basically argues against all of the things that the first film argued. Um, Clint Eastwood is back on the force working as a police officer in this film. And he finds that uh, what, what's happening is that uh, when somebody is let off uh, in, a, in a trial, uh, when it's clear, for example, a, a mafia guy early in the film is let, is let off on some technicality, um, he's then killed by vigilantes. And as Dirty Harry finds out, uh, there is a rogue group of cops who form their own rogue police force that goes around um, clandestinely uh, killing people who they who they think are guilty but have gotten off on some sort of bizarre technicality, 
And they actually invite Dirty Harry to be with them at one point. And I'm paraphrasing, I don't know the exact quote, but Dirty Harry essentially says to them, look, you guys do realize what you're doing is insane, right? I mean, you're going and killing people without any trial. And he says, our constitution is flawed. Our system of justice is flawed, but it's the best thing we've got. We can't just go out shooting everybody or we'll start just blowing people away for jaywalking. So he actually basically makes this anti-vigilante speech in the film and says, you guys are wrong. And so the vigilante squad realizes that he knows what they're up to and they come after him and he has to shoot it out with the vigilante, the, the, the renegade rogue cops. So it actually, um, it's a fascinating sequel in that it, it kind of talks about how problematic vigilante justice is. So it's like, it's very interesting to watch um, these, the sequel unfold. It's directed by Ted Post, who is a kind of a cult director. He made a film called The Baby from the 70s, which is also really an interesting and bizarre film. It's kind of a horror movie and a comedy at once. And he also directed one of my other favorite sequels, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. So um, Magnum Force is worth looking out for. Yeah, I watched I watched Magnum Force and I, I love the you know, the speech that he gives to those Nazi looking uh, kind of vigilante. They're almost like a, just a paramilitary hit squad or something. But yeah. it, it, And they look like Nazis. They're like blonde and, you know, they're straight up fascists. Yeah, David Soul from Starsky and Hutch is in it. So it's... Yeah. This- and, but I love the, the line that, that he says just before he... Uh, at the beginning of that speech, he looks at them and it's almost like he's looking right into the camera at Polly and Kale. And he says, uh, you have clearly misunderstood me. Yes. <laughs> you know, like he says, like basically if you think that I would be down with this and that I would like, and it, cause they say that they're basically, they've been inspired by him. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like that scene in, in rope when this like uh, philosophy teacher who teaches like, you know, lots of Nietzsche stuff and will to power when, when he sees what, Leopold and Loeb have taken away from his classes. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And that, that look of complete horror when yeah. he realizes, oh my God, <laughs> you guys really misunderstood what I was teaching you. Yeah. Uh, and like, and so, and Harry sort of looks right in and he goes, you've, you've very much misunderstood me. Right. Yeah. And Clarence Darrow, the famous lawyer, actually in the trial of the actual killers, Leopold and Loeb, used that as a defense and said, not only did he bring psychiatrists in, who, who was the first, he was the first lawyer ever to bring kind of Freud, Sigmund Freud into the courtroom and say, these guys had miserable childhoods. They were brought up by nannies. They were cold. They had cold parents who were, who were ab- basically um, ab- ab- almost abused them because they were so cold and, and distant. Um, so they had distant parents, they had terrible childhoods, and they were indoctrinated by the philosophies of Nietzsche. So the teachings of Nietzsche were part of the reason why they committed this crime. And he succeeded in, in getting, them, uh, 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 getting them off the death penalty. They were, everyone thought, Leopold and Loeb, because they'd killed and raped a child, that they were a, a young boy, that they were going to get the chair. But they didn't. They actually got... Uh, life in prison. One of them, of course, was murdered in, in, in prison. And one of them uh, got out after a number of years and went uh, to a, 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 another country, went to live in another country, a South American nation, and rebuilt his life. So that, that's a kind of interesting backstory about crime and punishment around Leopold and Loeb. And, and they were seen as completely irredeemable killers, right? Yeah. Well, I think it, it, it also, just to go back to, to Polly Kale. Uh, to her famous, uh, famous uh, review of her Dirty Harry, Saint Cop, uh, where she says, uh, this is right near the end of the review. Um, on the way out, a pink-cheeked little girl was saying, that was a good picture to her father. Of course, the dragon had been slain. Dirty Harry is obviously just a genre movie, but this action genre has always had a fascist potential, and yeah. it has finally surfaced. If crime were caused by super evil dragons, there would be no Miranda, no Escobedo. We could all be licensed to kill like Dirty Harry. But since crime is caused by deprivation, misery, psychopathology, and social injustice, Dirty Harry is a deeply immoral movie. So I, I think what, what's fascinating in that review is that, I'm kind of contrasting it with, with Dirty Harry, is that I think it's, it's obvious that, um, 
that yes, you know, if you have, uh, as she puts it, deprivation, misery, psychopathology, and social injustice, those things absolutely exacerbate crime. Um, you know, only a fool would say otherwise. Uh, but, but this is, I think, a big sort of blind spot within the kind of enlightenment uh, worldview that, that we have inherited from the 18th century. Like this idea that, uh, as, as Jean-Jacques Rousseau puts it in Emile, you know, uh, all things leave the hand of God perfect, but are corrupted in the hands of men. So this idea that we were all born perfect and good. And um, if anybody grows up to become a criminal, it's because um, they were abused or they were exposed to violent video games or violent TV or they they uh, they were brutalized themselves, or or they have some sort of chemical imbalance, like there's something wrong with their brains. And the thing is, is like, um, you know, I've been I've been studying this for a long time, cr- criminology and teaching on this stuff. And the problem is, is like that is that's true, perhaps you know, most of the time. Like, you know, it's but there are people. Who are um, who have not been brutalized? Who did not grow up poor? Uh, who did not? Who by? I mean, this was the the sort of the horror at Nuremberg, right? I mean, the Americans when they put all those Nazis on trial at Nuremberg, the first thing they did is they brought in all these like, psychologists uh, to give them tests because they wanted to know uh, were these people like uh, abused as children. Uh, did they have mental health problems? Were they, uh, and what they, they were horrified to find was that not only were these people psychologically totally normal in that, you know, they, they couldn't easily be diagnosed with any kind of serious mental health problem. They were highly educated. They had, right. And so they, they, I think you do, if you, if you lose sight of the fact as Pauline Kael seems to um, in this, you know, at least it, as she's represented in this review, if you act as if um, there's never going to be a kind of evil that is just a function of, yeah, there's just some people who are like really, really cruel and and nasty, and they want to and, and greedy, and they want to. Um, if you don't have as part of your sort of equation for understanding reality, if you don't factor those people in it's going to lead to um, to a real blind spot. And I sort of saw Dirty Harry watching it again, you know, now at 45 years old. I, I saw it as, to some extent, in creating this cartoonishly evil villain, you know, as you say, I mean, he's like just over the top. <laughs> it's like they just give him every every kind of, they don't give him any redeeming qualities or anything like that. I think you know the, to some extent the the movie is is a little bit of a parable um, to if you create a system that says that the only reason somebody would do bad things is because of a b c d uh, then you're not going to be able to make sense of somebody who is just evil. You know, it's just like a bad person. Oh, and and there and we know with certain serial killers, there are people who are simply devoid of any kind of empathy, right? They, that gene is just knocked right out of them. And that the whole, um, you know, Leopold Loeb, let's explain why these guys became killers. It's uh, the, the nurture versus nature argument. That's, that's all brought up um, in a film like The Bad Seed, which you and I have talked about before, in which there's an eight-year-old girl who's a serial killer and they... And the mother is trying to figure out why this has happened. And did she, did, did, did the girl inherit this gene from her mother? And the mother is haunted by it, right? So this whole sort of eugenics argument that gets, that comes into the film. Um, also, it's something that's parodied very, very well in the film's 1996 film Scream that Wes Craven directed. And um, at one point when the killers are revealed, um, one of them um, is covered in blood. He's been killing people and he's talking to Nib Campbell and he starts sobbing and pretend like mockingly talking about his horrific childhood. And that's why he became a killer. So there's actually like, it's that film is a, obviously a horror and a comedy very intentionally meant as a parody of horror movies of slack of the slasher film. And he actually jokes, makes a joke about it. Um, 
And as we and as we know from, for example, um, the testimony of Jeffrey Dahmer's stepfather, that even with interventions, uh, Dahmer's mother and stepfather recognized that Jeffrey Dahmer was a very troubled young person, and in particular. They noticed that he was torturing and killing animals, pets and animals, and they were very disturbed by this and knew that it was an extremely bad sign, and they sent him to, for help, and none of the help seemed to work. Um, in Bowling for Columbine, uh, Michael Moore interviews Marilyn Manson, who is blamed for the uptick in crime, and, Mar- and Michael Moore asks Marilyn Manson, what would you have said to Klebold and Harris, the, the killers, the, the spree killers at, at, at Columbine? who killed 12 people and then themselves. Um, and Marilyn Manson said, well, I would have just listened to them. I would have heard them out. Well, we know that Klebold and Harris actually were identified both by their parents and peers and teachers as being troubled youth who were sent to counselors and, so, and, and psychologists. They were actually asked about their issues. They were heard out and yet they still committed the crimes. So you're right. There's, there's not really a simple answer. And Pauline Kale proves herself um, you know, a, a, a total uh, kind of left-wing uh, <laughs> uh, hippie. She's totally woke before that term was word was really used. And uh, she's kind of rising to the bait a little bit. Um, and, and her, I'm also quoting the review that, you, that you're referring to in, her, in some of her final words of her review of Dirty Harry. She says, quote, the movie is just as astute in what it leaves out. In, the, in his guise as a sniper, the many-sided evil one many-sided evil one has an impressive arsenal that includes a high-powered rifle and a machine gun, but the movie raises no question about how he was able to purchase these weapons. Clearly she's referring to gun controls. So she's also in in the film, in the, in the review advocating for gun control. Right. So, uh, you know, she's, she's, uh, she's coming at it from a very interesting perspective. Again, I, I mentioned Matt Wanat earlier and he, his defense of the film, which I mentioned before, but he puts it really well here in, in his, um, his article, his chapter on this movie. And he says, quote, nevertheless, what I find most striking about Dirty Harry is that I have rarely met anyone who has failed to recognize the film's politics. If part of the danger of ideology is its apparent naturalness and invisibility, the surface obviousness of Dirty Harry puts the film in a position to invite oppositional viewings largely absent in the far more seductive and largely unironic action films. So he's arguing that because this film wears its politics so clearly on its sleeve, it's actually in way less dangerous than films that are more stealth in the way in which they, the, the way in which they convey certain political messages. And I think that's really interesting. I'd love to read the piece that you mentioned as Dirty Harry is some kind of a feminist film, because of course, yeah. <laughs> one of the, one of the things that yeah, is laughable because one of the things that my students know when, when I show that film is that, um, one of the tenets of fascism and fascist art is that women are often just completely sidelined. The only women in that film are uh, cor- beautiful corpses um, or uh, they're ineffectual. There's the wife of the, the detective who apparently went to a really bad acting school. And, <laughs> and then there's uh, the bus driver who is useless. So women are really uh, in that film is very much in keeping with the, uh, fascism in that uh, women are not really given much of a, of a part. Of course, I think it's a sudden impact. One of the uh, Dirty Harry sequels, he's given a, a woman partner. He's assigned a woman partner. And so a Dirty Harry must get over his sexist attitudes because uh, here he is with the with a woman he has to deal with. So Yeah. Well, I like one of my favorite scenes in, in the movie is when he's he gets the wrong address Right, and he's going to that place, and he stands up on um, on the dumpster, and he's looking at, and there's that that very you know, good-looking woman and her boyfriend who looks like he's he's Japanese American guy, uh, and he gives her like new I don't know like a kimono or something, and so she uh, takes off takes off her shirt and she's her breasts are out and she's like uh, putting it on, and he's staring. Um, you know, a little bit longer than he should be. Uh, Clint Eastwood into the window. And then the neighbors drag him down and start, you know, kicking the shit out of him because they think he's a peeping Tom, right? Which he sort of is a little bit, right? I mean, he kind of is. And then his, his partner comes and says, you, 
you don't you realize that's a police officer? And he tells, uh, he tells, let them go, let them go. So there's this kind of acknowledgement that what these guys have done is, is vigilante justice to an extent. They didn't call the police, right? They took care of it themselves. And uh, Harry, you know, sees that as being justified. And he says, let them go, even though they've just assaulted a police officer. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, what do you make of that scene? Because it's, oh, no, it's, it's a I, movie about vigilantism where the vigilante is a victim of vigilante violence early on in the movie. Yeah. Ab- no, absolutely. Uh, he, um, th- that's a huge part of the film is that uh, he, lets those, he lets those guys go. The guy's saying that's a police officer. And then he says, let him go even though he's been, he's been hit because he, he completely agrees with their, their form of, uh, of, of vigilante justice. It's, it's exactly like him. Yeah. That it was pro-social. It was a pro-social also, action. The film also sets up because Harry is, is, is a, himself leering at uh, these sex scenes a couple of times uh, leering and saying, I, I don't, I don't get out enough. Really. He'd like to be in this three way himself. Yeah. Um, he 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 kind of sets up a, a a mirror image between Harry and and the killer. So that's something that's really interesting. There's also a lot of um, there's also a lot of Catholic imagery in the film. There's the light up cross. Um, there's uh, it's 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 kind of a Catholic film in a way, and it's it's we're made to feel a little bit guilty for identifying with Harry. He's torturing. He's doing all of these awful things. And yet we feel he's justified in it. So it's, I feel like there's, uh, it's, in, it's kind of infused with some sort of uh, like uh, Catholic uh, overtones. Yeah. Oh, I love that scene in the, in the park where, where he meets the, at the foot of the cross. I mean, that's like, that's intensely, intensely, uh, you know, Christian and Catholic. Yeah. With the kind of the, the two sort of uh, the imagery of um, on, on, Calvary when Jesus is on the cross and there's the two uh, criminals on either side of him, you know, one of them who's going to uh, end up in heaven and the other one who's going to end up in hell. And they, they have that one shot where you see both there's like Harry and Scorpio and they're exactly on either sides of the two sinners um, on either side of the cross. I was like, Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Like that was was a well thought out shot. It was uh, it was, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit on the nose, but it was good. <laughs> it was like, you know, that idea, but well, it's, uh, it's, you know, do you have any like sort of closing thoughts on, on dirty well, Harry? In terms of closing thoughts? I mean, obviously I'm one of those, uh, crazy bleeding heart liberals who thinks, uh, you know, when you arrest somebody, they should have rights and you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't torture them or any of that other, other nonsense. And you should, you know, you should wait before you, you should uh, arrest first and shoot later. Don't start shooting people. This is obviously what we're seeing in the United States. Uh, Donald Trump obviously is playing up this violence that's going on right now and uh, has talked about Black Lives Matter as if it's a terrorist organization. He clearly wants to do what Nixon did in 1968, and that is really play up the tough on crime card. Um, and, it, you know, in some cases, it's, it seems to be working. Some of the polls are shifting a little bit, and Biden's considerable lead is... is uh, is being cut into by some of this talk. Um, polls are showing that Americans are concerned about um, security and safety. So we'll see what happens. It's certainly a different time. And of course, Nixon was running not as an incumbent, which Trump is. So that also shifts things and makes things um, quite different. I do want to say, uh, as a bleeding heart liberal, though, that the Miranda decision was uh, complicated by the fact that Miranda got off because of the Supreme Court, but was subsequently tried again because his girlfriend at the time said he boasted about raping this 18-year-old girl. So he went back on trial with his girlfriend's testimony who said, when I was going out with him, this guy told me that he raped this woman and he got off uh, because of uh, that he hadn't been read his rights. So he actually went to prison for several years um, after that. Uh, he served several years. He got out in the 70s. 
Um, and uh, p- police officers who would have their Miranda rights cards used to, when they recognized him, they asked him to sign their card that had the Miranda rights written on it. So he actually would, would oblige for police officers and would sign uh, Ernesto Miranda on these, this card that had the, the rights on it that they had to read out to people when they arrested them. So he, he sort of became a very twisted celebrity. Um, he hung out with pretty bad people in the 1970s. He got into a uh, brawl in a pool hall and was stabbed and died on his way to the hospital. So it was dead on arrival in the ambulance. So um, that's... What a wacky, wacky story. I never heard, I've never heard any of this. That was the fate of Ernesto Miranda. So yeah, it's amazing uh, when you hear like these, you know, like the porn star who did Deep Throat. She ended up becoming like an anti-pornography evangelical Christian activist. Yeah, yeah. Like, like you just hear these future histories of these people. You're like, <laughs> it's just completely weird. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And in and you know, in certain cases, we do hear about people who. Um, have been uh, who who have been reformed and who have turned their lives around and become useful members of society and who have um, attempted to make up for atone for their crimes, uh, even really horrific, very horrific crimes. Um, so uh, you know there are cases where they have made up for things, uh, and then there are other cases where they clearly have not and go go back to their old ways. So. Uh, crime is complicated. I don't think it's as easy as Dirty Harry would have us believe. I always, ju- I often juxtapose this film in my American cinema class I teach at Marianopolis. I show Dirty Harry and then the next week I show Dog Day Afternoon, which of course is a, is a remarkably different attitude towards crime. It has us have a lot of sympathy for Al Pacino as the bank robber and shows us his motivations for, for the, for the crime. And, and, um, uh, you know, it's uh, that's also like a remarkable film, beautifully done, and 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 gives us uh, sympathy with the devil. You know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again, and uh, this has been this has been great fun, and uh, let's do this again soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's always a real pleasure. All right, take care, Matthew. Take care. <laughs>